My name is Cindy Tooch, and I think it would be nice if we opened with prayer. We're so thankful to be able to be here in this place at this time to talk about the things of the Spirit. Thank you for each person that came, for the families they represent, the church families they represent. We pray that the angels of God and the sweet Spirit of heaven will pervade our gathering this afternoon, and that we will grow in our understanding of God's will for us and how what type of leader he wants us to be so that he can use us to maximum capacity. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, I was born here in Spokane, so I felt sort of like a salmon returning to their spawning grounds. Um, I actually live on the west side of Washington State, and for those of you who are not from the North Pacific, which may be most of you, how many of you are not from, from the Pacific Northwest? Okay, most of you are not from the Pacific Northwest. So let me tell you about my journey yesterday to get here. I live in Tacoma, which is a very densely populated area, kind of a suburb of Seattle. So I go from this very densely populated area up across the Cascade Mountains with stunning vistas of the mountains, uh, and then down into the valley of uh, Ellensburg, um, very fertile valleys there. Um, uh, close to Yakima, where all the cherries come from in the United States, virtually. And then uh, over toward Moses Lake, where it's more arid and where we see lots of uh, wheat fields and across the Columbia River. I mean, the, the, whole, the whole trip was just so beautiful. And of course, for me, it was like coming home because I lived on a ranch uh, growing up um, about an hour uh, south of here. And, and, then, and then, of course... Um, we come up towards Spokane, and, and we go through all of this volcanic rock. Now, you know that this is, our Earth is the wreckage of a drowned planet. So this volcanic rock is very interesting, and, and there's a lot of science, creation science, that can be had in this area. And then we come into the beautiful pine trees of Spokane. So I hope that you cancel your flight home, and you just take a trip that I did. Just, you know, rent a car and go over there to... Tacoma, Seattle, look at our beautiful mountains, and then go home and fly home. Okay, so what is your definition of a leader? Don't everyone speak at once? A leader is a good follower. A leader is a good follower. Oh, how I like that. Jose? A, a leader is a servant like Jesus. I like that one too. Anybody else? One who leads by example. Mm -mm. Good stuff. You know, um, I did my doctorate on leadership and my doctoral dissertation on Ellen White on leadership. But the problem with that is she never defines leadership precisely. I mean, she doesn't say leadership is X, Y, Z. We have to extrapolate that from her diaries and from her writings and from her speaking and um, even her letters. So I want to start this afternoon and see how good you are at pulling out leadership qualities from a letter that she wrote to her husband. And I passed out these little cards, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a lot of principles. Remember, principles are general moral rules of conduct that never change in any culture or any, any geographic area. Uh, they are always, the principles are always for always. So I, I, I'm... In this presentation, I'm pulling out a lot of principles, and I don't always tell you um, where I got the principle. That's so I'm, because I'm hoping you'll buy the book, and then I get my 10 cents royalty. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, so when I read today from this letter that Ellen White wrote to her husband, acknowledging her own struggle with temptation to harbor hard feelings about her fellow workers and her desire to emulate more, more fully the servant leadership of Jesus, I want you to write down on your card or on your piece of paper, whatever you have there, draw a line down the middle and write positive qualities or positive traits of leadership. And on the other side, I want you to write negative qualities of leadership. Because Ellen White mentions quite a few. Just before coming over here, I, I read the letter again and I jotted down and I got, mm, I don't know, maybe I got about 20 here. So see how many you can come up with as I'm reading. Just jot them down in one sentence or maybe a couple, not one sentence, one word, you know, one word describing a quality, a negative quality, or a positive quality. And let's see what we can pull out of this letter. 
husband. I feel so grateful that the Lord is of tender pity, full of mercy. He deals with us not according to our sins, but as long-suffering. He sees our weakness. He knows our defects, our lack of faith and courage, and yet he bears with us still. The same divine sympathy, the same patient love he shows to us who are so unworthy of his favors. I am not what I ought to be. Who's writing this letter? Ellen White, right. Nor what Jesus would have me. I see that I must have more of the spirit of the master. I see some of you writing. That's good. I must not let one thought or one feeling arise in my heart against my brethren, for they may be in the sight of God more righteous than I. My feelings must not be stirred. We have battles to fight with ourselves, but we should continually encourage our brethren. We should lay no stumbling blocks in their way and should cherish only the very kindest feelings toward them. Satan is willing and anxious to tear them down. Let's not unite our forces with his. They have their conflicts and trials. Who has conflicts and trials? Yeah, fellow workers, fellow believers, fellow Christians. God forbid that we should add one trial to those they already have to bear. Now, dear husband, I would not harbor feelings that this one is injuring me and that one is hurting me. Have confidence in your brethren and do not censor them in thought, by pen, or by word. Let the softening, subduing influence of the Spirit of God into the heart. We have no time or power to spend in justifying ourselves. We must hide self in Jesus. Oh, I long for constant repose in God and not to have my mind in agitation in regard to minor matters. I constantly feel that my work upon the earth may not last long. While it does last, I want my thoughts and mind engaged in doing all I can to save perishing souls around me. For those of you who just came in, we're reading a letter that Ellen White wrote to her husband. And in this letter, I think we can pull out some qualities of leadership, either negative qualities or positive qualities. I want my thoughts and mind engaged in doing all I can to save perishing souls around me. I cannot and will not allow my mind to think unkindly of and misjudge my fellow laborers. I will write out the testimonies of reproof for anyone, and then afterwards my feelings will not be exercised against them. I will look within. I will seek to make my ways in the strength of Jesus perfect before God. And when tempted to feel unkindly or to be suspicious and to find fault, I will put this out of my heart quickly. For the soul temple is surely being desecrated and defiled by Satan. The love that Jesus possesses, it is the duty of both of us to welcome and cherish and to have that charity that thinks no evil. Then our influence will be fragrant as sweet perfume. For those of you who just came in, we're reading a letter that Ellen White wrote to her husband. And in this letter, we're trying to extrapolate or pull out qualities, positive ones for leadership, and negative qualities for leadership. I've been shown that unless we make most diligent work in purifying our own souls from all unkindness and bitterness, these traits will reveal themselves at times before we are aware of it to do great harm to the cause we love. I was shown that it rests wholly with us, whether we leave an influence behind us that is subduing, transforming, and elevating, or, to the contrary, whether we shall wound, injure, be dictatorial, overbearing, censoring, exalting, and magnifying ourselves, and it be a relief to many who love and fear God when our voice shall be silent in the grave. Don't ever say that Ellen White didn't have a sense of humor. She's saying, let's, you know, let's not be critical. Otherwise, people will be glad when we're dead, when our, when our influence will no longer be felt. I feel deeply, I feel that we've erred in not manifesting greater love, forbearance, and pity for others. The diseased have ye not strengthened, Ezekiel 34.4, is the reproof given to unfaithful shepherds. Our feelings must not be a ruling power. We must walk in all humility of mind. The Lord loves his servants who are unselfishly engaged in the saving of souls. He will as readily guide them in judgment and teach them his will as he will teach us. We must believe that Jesus stands at the helm. 
He will be captain, and we may trust his own work in his all-powerful hands. Isn't this practical? Oh, my, this is just, you know, scratches where it itches. I know that God has conscientious, God-fearing men in the harvest field who will not spare themselves, who will, if required, sacrifice all for Jesus. Let's respect our brethren. Give them credit for honesty of purpose and unselfish motives, as we wish they would do for us. We should treat all, rich and poor, high or lowly, exactly as we wish them to treat us. God is no respecter of persons. The pure, those who do good and those who seek good, are very near to Jesus. The disciple whom Jesus loved most was John, because he was the closest imitator of God's character and was imbued with the spirit of love, as you all answered together. It was the joy of Christ's soul to do good to men. Many times he sighed in spirit. By the way, you think this is a long letter from Ellen White? Oh, I left out a lot of it. I'm almost it. Many times his tears flowed, expressing his anguish of soul when he beheld the unbelief, the ingratitude, and felt the hatred of those he came to bless and save. Let us, dear husband, make melody to God in our hearts. Let us not be found accusers of our brethren, for this is the work Satan is engaged in. Let us talk of Jesus and his matchless love. I feel every day like deeply repenting before God for my hardness of heart and because my life has not been more in accordance with the life of Christ. I weep over my own hardness of heart, my life which has not been a correct example to others. Let us bring ourselves into harmony with heaven and we will then be in harmony with our brethren and at peace among ourselves. Let us now, both of us, redeem the time. In love, your Ellen. That's letter 5, 1880. So what did you find for positive traits of a leader in that letter? Yes. Stop, stop. Long-suffering, sympathetic spirit of the master. Okay, somebody else. Patient. Patient. Love. Loving. Um, positive thoughts. Positive thoughts. Concerned about her influence. Think well of others. Be in harmony with heaven. Oh, yeah. Finding self in Jesus. Finding our identity in Jesus. Was it? Confidence? Yes, okay. Humbleness and redeeming the time. Conscientious. Feelings under the control of God. Not adding to people's trials. That came out strong. Knowing, Knowing her weaknesses. And, Jesus as a and having Jesus as captain. These are all important qualities for a leader. Trusting God. Willingness. Willingness to listen. Oh, boy. Trusting God. Respect. Hiding self in Jesus. And, and saving souls, having the, the passion to save of Joe. You got most of the ones that I wrote down. I don't know if anyone mentioned treats all fairly and justly, radiates a sweet influence. Somebody did talk about influence. Yeah, believes the best of fellow workers. Whoa, there's so much to learn here. Okay, what did she say about negative characteristics of a leader? Fault finding. Fault finding. Misjudging. Misjudging. Tearing down. Dictatorial. Dictatorial. What was it? Feelings of injury. In other words, thinking a lot about how I've been injured, magnifying what I see as slights. Accusers. Accusers of others. Judgmental. Suspicious. Hardness of heart. Dictatorial. Overbearing. She doesn't use the word paranoid, but she kind of describes it when she says, you know, we're magnifying slights, you know, building up the slights, imagining some slights and magnifying real slights. Justifying self, she says, that's negative. Judging, you said that. Wow. So that that gives us um, quite a bit right there um, in terms of what we can learn from the writings of Ellen White. Today's millennial Seventh-day Adventist church is profoundly impacted by the information age, by postmodern thought, by globalization, by racial ethnic pluralism. 
as well as the tendency of some towards seeking spirituality in non-Christian sources, and in some cases, in non-biblical forms of worship. So for you as a Christian leader, your challenge is enormous. But are you alone out there? What comfort and assurance does Ellen White give that Jesus cares, that Jesus is interested in 21st century leadership? I told you that I did my doctorate on leadership. And from my research, it appears that the postmodern Christian and even the non-Christian leader is more than anything else looking for meaning in his or her life. No one denies the, the attraction of temporal success or productivity, but the heart cry seems to be a hunger for, for something deeper, something that goes beyond bigger, better, richer, more powerful. I think that's part of the attraction of ASI, helping leaders find meaning in philanthropy and in service and not just productivity. My first core discovery was that Ellen White, of course, she's considered by Seventh-day Adventists to be a prophetic messenger of the Lord. My first core discovery that she, she writes about how God can fill that lack of meaning in a postmodern leader's heart. Of course, she doesn't use the word postmodern, but we can extrapolate that to our time. To Ellen White, a true leader must be a recipient of the Holy Spirit and respond to the grace of God in his or her life. And she wrote that the human heart will never know happiness until it is submitted to be molded by the Spirit of God. That's just such an amazing, amazing citation, because, you know, everybody wants to be happy, don't we? But she says, forget it. I mean, if you're looking for happiness here, there, and everywhere, it's not going to happen until you're fully submitted to the molding of the Spirit of God. Oh, I have so much growing to do to be in that place of Full submission. There's nothing more important for us personally or for the church as a whole than to seek the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in this heaven-sent revival. What would that look like? She says, a revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs. To seek this should be our first work. Now, this next question I'm going to ask you is rhetorical. That means you don't have to answer it. I just want you to think about it. How could you reorder your life to seek revival more ardently. Because she says seeking revival should be our very first work. What would that look like? How would your life be different if you were really prioritizing revival? I'm asking the question of myself. Ellen White did not see the mantle of leadership as some mystical anointing of, of superiority or infallibility. In contrast, she stated, the way to become great and noble is to be like Jesus. Pure, holy, undefiled. My second core discovery was the breadth and scope of Ellen White's counsel on Christian leadership. She, she talks about so much. She talks about good models of leadership, poor examples of leadership, of leaders' great need of knowing God personally, the empowerment of a gender-inclusive, race-inclusive, age-inclusive church for leadership and evangelism and service. She describes leadership qualifications, some of which you pulled out, how to respond to the airing, proactive visioning and planning, Ellen White sees leadership as an opportunity extended by God to all persons to use their influence to promote Christ and the kingdom of heaven with excellence. That's that's what I pulled out as her definition of leadership. She doesn't say it in just those words, but if I put all of the things together that she said about leadership, that's what I came up with. Ellen White sees leadership as an opportunity extended by God to all persons to use their influence to promote Christ and the kingdom of heaven with excellence. Ellen White's leadership counsel is always in the context of her unique theological structure, which is the great controversy. The great controversy between Christ and his angels, between Satan and his angels. Thus, the influence that she urges the leader to exert is on behalf of the kingdom of God, on behalf of redemption, and on behalf of Christ's offer of eternal life. So from the world's point of view, what are the perks of leadership? Power. Influence. Money. Authority. Prestige. I think quite a few of those that you mentioned are are Satan's definitions of leadership. So let me ask you a question. How many of you here are leaders? 
Oh, my, I should see every hand up. What did we just say? We said that leadership is an opportunity extended by God to all persons to use their influence on behalf of the kingdom of God. So that's all of us. We all are leaders. We all have people that we influence, and that's what it's all about. Leadership is influence. So every single person in this room today, regardless of your occupation or your elected status in church, are leaders. Most persons usually think of leaders as occupying administrative uh, positions, right? You know, we think, okay, the conference president, the pastor, Sabbath school superintendent maybe. But Ellen White does not narrow the definition of leadership in that way. Every Christian is called to represent Christ. Every Christian is called to be an ambassador for God and for his kingdom. Ellen White calls leaders under-shepherds who unite with Christ in his redemptive mission. So that's all of us, regardless of our spiritual gifts. We are representatives of God to all whom we influence. That's a pretty big responsibility, right? That's why our first priority as leaders must be to know God for ourselves. And there's no shortcuts to doing that. Time with God, leaders. There's no other way. She says, guard jealously your hours for prayer and self-examination. Set apart some portion of each day for a study of the scriptures and communion with God. Thus you will obtain spiritual strength and grow in grace and favor with God. Isn't that what we all want to do is to grow in grace and favor with God? We must not let anything stand in the way of our time. Guard it jealously. One of the places from which I distilled Ellen White's theory of leadership was through her descriptions of leaders in various biblical narratives or stories. Perhaps the most precise example that I found would be in Exodus 18, where Jethro tells Moses that he represents God to the people. And in commenting on this in the Acts of the Apostles, Ellen White affirms this view of leadership, representing God to the people whom you influence. Leaders are persons who represent God and his purpose and his character to those whom they are called to lead. She also quotes 1 Chronicles 28. That was David's charge to the newly anointed King Solomon, that he should know God. That was the most important thing that David could say to his son Solomon as he was taking over the leadership of the entire nation. Thus, Ellen White saw leaders as persons called by God, first of all, to know God, and then to pass that knowledge and the purpose of God on to the people. But at the same time, interestingly, and almost paradoxically, Ellen White did not promote a leader playing God in the isolated, dictatorial, authoritative style that we sometimes falsely think represents God. I was surprised at the progressive tone of her counsel. I found that she said that leaders should lead cultivating a relationship with their followers that is based on shared vision, shared values, shared purpose, characterized by respectful conflict, carefully managed transitions, and sustainable change. In other words, we don't always have to do things the way we've always done them. I see one person nodding. Does that statement worry you? We must discover together what are our values. Thus, our choices, even our choices to change the status quo, must reflect our values. I want to tell you an interesting story. At least I think it's interesting, and I suspect that you will also. In 1990, I was working as a Bible teacher at Great Lakes Adventist Academy in Michigan. And Jay Gallimore, conference president at that time, gave me pastor credentials and asked me to pastor the Carson City Church. But there's something you need to know about the Carson City Church. It was closed. It hadn't been open for three years. And he said, I want you to take your witnessing class, and I want those teenagers to take every office of the church, and I want you to basically, he didn't use the words in those days because we didn't use those words in 1990 much, but he, he said, I want you to church plant. That's basically what he said. I want you to build up this church in this community. The, the building was there, but it had been closed for three years because there weren't any members. Well, there were three old people in the community, probably as old as I am now, but they seemed old at the time. Uh, who went to other churches and wanted to come back, but the church doors had been closed, and so they weren't coming. So we, we chose a board of elders, all teenagers, from Great Lakes Adventist Academy. We, we chose a treasurer. He worked in the business office at Great Lakes Adventist Academy. Uh, we chose Sabbath school teachers, Sabbath school superintendent, um, personal ministries leader. Everybody except the pastor, which was me, was teenagers. <clears throat> and you may be thinking, what? How did this work? What kind of church would this be? Well, that's what I wondered, too. 
So I had them all meet at my house, my, my leaders, my leader group, my leadership team. And I said, okay, we need to decide how we're going to do this church. You know, there's, there's nothing uh, set in stone about how we're going to do the order of service or, you know, a lot of things. You know, nothing in the, in the Bible says that we have to have scripture reading. Maybe we will, but, you know, we, we don't have to sing here or have closing prayer here. We, you know, we can do whatever we want to do, but we have to do it based on our values. So what are our values? What is worship? So those, those kids worked through what is worship. What is important? Why do we come to church on Sabbath? What is our purpose in this community? And then they decided what the church would look like. And you probably would be surprised, but it was pretty traditional. It was pretty traditional. And we did an evangelistic meeting, and as far as I know, maybe someone here from Michigan can tell me, as far as I know, that church in Carson City is still open. I don't think the teens run it anymore, but I think that, that they started out a good thing. And it was, it was an experiment on, on, that the Michi- Michigan Conference did, and it was fun to be part of it. So our choices, even our choices to change the status quo, must reflect our values. We have to decide. What are we, what are we looking at? Uh, what scripture drives this decision? Additionally, Ellen White's counsel repeatedly defies the metaphors of her own industrial era. You know, she lived in the 19th century where a machine best described organization with all of machinery's inherent orderly and rational uniformity complete with rigid rules enforced by a rigid system of hierarchy. That's what it looked like in the 19th century. In her 19th century industrial era, leaders were usually separate from workers. Creativity and initiative were expected to come from the top. Ellen White defied all that. That's why I call her voice progressive. Against the cultural milieu of her day, Ellen White promoted inclusive creativity, respectful conflict in the body of Christ, humanizing interaction of administrators and managers with workers, and distributed leadership. In other words, delegation. Delegate leadership roles to your youth, for instance. They will make mistakes. Of course they will make mistakes. Then talk it through. Let them grow from their mistakes. Ask them, if we had done this differently, what might have been the result? Never, never, she wrote. No, let me get this stuff up there. Never, never feel the slightest disturbance because the Lord is raising up youth to lift and carry the heavier burdens and proclaim the message of truth. Amen. She also extolled biblical values. In today's leadership literature, that's usually called human values, such as love, empowerment, trust, grace, humility, forgiveness. She urged leaders to move courageously through complexities of transition, certain of their hope that Jesus has not abandoned them and that he is coming. Jesus is going to intervene in planet Earth, in Earth history. We're not always going to be confined to this world of pain and disillusionment and divorce and rejection and abandonment and human tragedy on all sides. He invites leaders to speak words of hope and faith and courage. Jesus is coming. It's not always going to be like this. The core of Ellen White's leadership theory is that the objective of leadership is to reflect Christ. Be like Jesus, you know? We sing the song. Do we act it out? And thus be more effective in saving souls. She wrote that the success of a person called to leadership is in direct proportion to the leader's willingness to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in that renewed life, every person, regardless of their occupation, regardless of their age, regardless of their gender, is to use their influence to draw toward Christ and toward his offer of redemption. He would honor leaders by connecting them with himself and by giving them his Holy Spirit to qualify them for the responsibilities they were asked to bear. So have you ever been asked to do something scary? Oh, boy, I have. I'll tell you about the most scary public thing I've ever been asked to do. I think it was about 2004, maybe. I was working for the White Estate at the time. Oh, Ed, I'm so glad you're here because I'm going to tell a story that relates to something that, that I want you to hear. <laughs> and here this was, Glacier View, and I had written this paper on interpreting Ellen White's Earth history comments. And then I had to give it to all these scientists and theologians. 
from the front. And they were, they were all gathered together in this big conference. That was the scariest thing by far that I'd ever had to do. And what was particularly frightening about it was after I had made that speechifying, then the persons who had, had given the afternoon papers were called to the stage, and then they were grilled by the audience with all kinds of questions. Any question that anybody, any theologian or any scientist wanted to ask, they could ask. So that was definitely the scariest thing that I ever did in my life. But I was comforted by this citation. He would honor leaders by connecting them with himself and to give them his Holy Spirit, qualifying them for the responsibilities they were called to bear. Sometimes when I'm working with youth, kids say, oh, I, I couldn't pray with someone when, I'm, when we're going door to door. I couldn't pray with someone. I've never prayed with someone. I've never prayed out loud in my whole life, maybe they'll say. And I'll say, you know, ask the Holy Spirit to give you the, the bravery, the courage. And pretty soon they're praying with everybody at the door. Why? Because they put their fat, hairy toes in the Jordan River and watched it part. They were anointed by the Holy Spirit. And he will do the same for you at any age, regardless of what is scary to you in leadership, what new vistas the Lord is opening to you, or doors he's pushing you through. Just say yes to God, because it's, it's, it's his work. His Holy Spirit will enable you and empower you. All his biddings are enablings. A leader through Ellen White's lens is only an instrumentality to achieve the goal of mobilizing the body of Christ to action, of providing momentum, and thus the leader is no more or no less important than the follower. Was it you, sister, that, that brought that out, that a leader, oh no, it was you that said a leader is a follower. Yeah. She saw no hierarchical status or privilege of position attached to leadership. Ellen White was highly supportive of education and developing one's talents to their capacity. Nevertheless, in her expanded definition of leadership, it is Christ, not formal institutions of learning, that qualifies the leader for God's purpose. This is an amazing citation. In choosing men and women for his service, God does not ask whether they possess worldly wealth, learning, or eloquence. He asks, do they walk in such humility that I can teach them my way? Can I put my words into their lips? Will they represent me? Ministry of Healing 37. So three questions God does not ask. Do you possess wealth? Do you possess learning? Do you possess eloquence? Three questions God does ask. Are they humble enough that I can teach them? Will they put their lips, can I put my words into their lips? And will they represent me? Such important questions for each one of us to ask ourselves every day for every challenge. It does not appear that Ellen White's leadership principles will ever become outdated, even in the face of accelerating world change, because they have universal application. In today's conflicting array of leadership theories, Ellen White's leadership principles consistently remind the Christian leader to center his or her life in the call of God, to be faithful to scripture, to enable a gender-inclusive, race-inclusive, age-inclusive movement, to preach the gospel within the context of Revelation's three angels. Her empowerment of women and youth and minorities is unique in the leadership literature that I surveyed as is her clarion call for leaders to vision as well as mobilize and empower in light of the imminence of the second coming. And this is, this is really interesting because, you know, it, when I was doing my doctorate, I surveyed a lot of literature by Christian theorists, but not one of them centered the call to leadership in the proclamation of the eschaton, of Jesus' coming. So it, that's, that makes us unique. We are a remnant raised up by God with a specific message for a specific time in Earth's history. And God calls us all, get up, get out, do something for God. Though Ellen White was not a classically trained leadership theorist, as we understand that, after all, she only had a third grade education, I did find that she offers a unique leadership theory centered in the theme of, what was her great structural overriding yeah, I love for sure. Yeah, but it, it, the, in the structure of the great controversy, the great conflict between Christ and his angels and Satan and his angels, she centers all of her leadership theory right in that, in that arc 
Although she herself never claimed a leadership role, she was certainly an agent of change and vision. Wouldn't you have to say that? For sure. Policies were not nearly as important to Ellen White as vision and compassion. For Ellen White, people were always more important than policies. Ellen White expected both leaders and managers to lead with vision and initiative and partnering and the use of their influence to achieve change. So, you know, we were talking about, about what is a leader? Using your influence to achieve change and to work with excellence to promote the kingdom of God. Repeatedly, Ellen White reminds us that the most important qualification for a leader is the calling and the empowerment of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. We must not underestimate the worth and the value of the Holy Spirit in the life of an effective leader. This anointing comes in response to the leader's willingness to ask in humility for the Spirit's renewal, for the Spirit's guidance, and to respond to his promptings with selfless obedience and service. Now that sounds quite lofty, doesn't it? It's not so easy to do in the here and now. But all of God's biddings are enablings. The spirit-led leader will not be eager for power, for status, or recognition, but will carefully build and nurture an inclusive team. Ellen White encourages the spirit-led leader to build a relationship with his or her followers that is based on shared purposes, shared values, shared vision, and to encourage dialogue, and get this, even encourage disagreement as groups seek together to build a program or initiative or achieve change. She sees Jesus as this great model for spirit-led leadership. Leaders, in Ellen White's view, must prioritize time for careful, continual, deep study of scriptures, both to seek a deep relationship and commitment to God and to find truth and wisdom. Did you know that she, promoted, that she promoted an expanding understanding of Scripture? That's really profound. That's really thought-provoking. Accompanied with dynamic discussion of new truth. And she said, when real spiritual life declines, leaders become rigid. They avoid discussion of fresh scriptural insights. So they fall into a fatal rut. Leaders of integrity must schedule time daily for for communion with God. Nothing must be allowed to interfere with with our time with God. Not the internet, not sports, not relationships, not productivity. Nothing must be allowed to crowd out time with Jesus, especially in this time of earth's history when the devil has come down with great wrath to try to deceive us. After all, the purpose of redemption is to restore in humanity the image of God. And how can that image of God be restored in you and restored in me if we don't spend time with him? This divine miracle of heaven's infilling can only occur occur in the leader whose dependence on God is full, complete, total. Additionally, interesting, Ellen White wrote often that a leader's spiritual character develops and strengthens as he or she actively works to aid the poor and the marginalized. Have you ever heard that before? Our character, our own character, is developed as we aid the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, those who have the least in society. If we're not doing for those who have the least, we're not becoming Christ-like. From her perspective, the higher the administrative position, the greater need of dependence upon God. No leader can rationalize sin due to pressure or any other circumstance. And I love this. She wrote that too much busyness dries up the soul. She says it leaves the character Christless. She saw a living connection with God, not position, as essential to sound character-making and development of right principles. Leaders in responsible positions who do not pray continually for divine wisdom will develop a distorted worldview. And that can happen without us even being aware of it. She talks, she uses the illustration of being in a canoe, going down a stream, and suddenly you're going the wrong way. You don't even realize that your canoe has reversed course. And how can we avoid that? Time and prayer, saying, Lord, give me a discerning heart. Send your Holy Spirit to me so that that I know the difference between truth and error. Otherwise, we're going to forfeit God's blessing, and that's going to result in personal failure. 
power and strength for service come through prayer as demonstrated in Christ's example. Remember Jesus, when he had the most challenges, he spent the most time in prayer. Before he chose his disciples, all night. Before, before he chose to die for you and me, hours with God. So sometimes we think, ah, I don't really have time except for a quick prayer with my hand on the doorknob on the way to my quick and busy life. But the, busy we are, the busier we are, the more we should pray because the more we're going to be challenged. And Martin Luther said that. He said, when I'm busiest, that's when I pray most. Leaders should pray on behalf of those they influence and inform them of those prayers. In times of crisis or emergency, God waits for leaders to pray in order that, that he can intervene. Leaders should also pray to discern good from evil. Ellen White also counseled leaders to do more than perfunctory praying in committee meetings, councils, and workers' meetings. That was really interesting to me because, you know, I'm kind of old, and so I've been in a lot of committee meetings. And how often I have heard the chair of the committee say, oh, let's just say a quick prayer and get on with the agenda. But that's exactly what we shouldn't be doing is a quick prayer. If the agenda is worthy of our time, it's worthy of our time in prayer. Leaders should pray for unity, divine leadership, spirit wisdom, and for particularly complex issues, she, re- she recommends fasting and prayer. Now I know I've, I've quit preaching and gone to meddling when I talk about fasting and prayer, huh? But remember, um, Ellen White says that fasting does not necessarily mean not eating anything. I'm taking a six-week fast from Facebook right now in the wake of General Conference. I thought I would be off of all of that chatter. And I, in, in, the, in the four months before General Conference, I fasted from desserts. So there's all different ways of, of fasting. But if we really think that there's something urgent in our personal lives, in the life of our family, in the life of our church family, or in the life of our global church family, maybe we ought to take it seriously. Maybe we ought to really earnestly seek God in prayer. And I'm just a novice in this, trust me. I have a friend, a pastor friend, who honestly, he honestly did this. I don't know how he did it. But he drank water for 40 days, for praying for a church plant he was doing. I don't know how he survived it. And I'm not suggesting that you do that. I'm just saying that, you know, I I think it's important that we really take this prayer thing earnestly, as earnestly as God wants us to take it. Though Ellen White did not coin the term servant leader, she does write at length on the concept of servant leadership. One of you mentioned that. She saw Jesus as the primary servant leader model. Servant leaders combine God's strength and wisdom with humble diligence. Though she encouraged leaders to be productive, absolutely, making the most of present opportunities, she strongly condemned pushing for status or a higher position. According to Ellen White, a servant leader loves people and works sacrificially and compassionately to save them for the kingdom of God. Loving people, that's easy when they love us. It's a little bit less easy. Uh, when they're annoying or we disagree with them. Ellen White gave considerable counsel to leaders who abused authority. In her view, no one should see himself or herself as infallible, of supreme authority, or use any dictatorial, arbitrary methods of command. She vehemently opposed centralization of power and control, while at the same time she warned against congregationalism. Leaders who do not treat each other with respect, with dignity, are abusing their authority. She wrote, The Lord has not placed any one of his human agencies under the dictation and control of those who are themselves, but erring mortals. He has not placed upon men the power to say, You shall do this, and you shall not do that. She was particularly strong in her indictment of any kind of dishonest practice, exploitation, or injustice. She said that committee members should be intentionally chosen to represent diversity of thought, not because they necessarily concur with the leader's views. Last night, I heard a sad story. Someone came and and, uh, uh, visited with me and said, this person was extraordinarily active in their local church, just extraordinarily active. And um, the pastor had a different idea and he brought us a, a series of, of four points to the board. And the head elder said, here's the four points that the pastor has formulated. If you agree with them, that's great. If you don't, you can resign your positions. She was heartbroken. 
What to do, what to do, where to go. I think that that, that, that is an abuse of power. You know, we're, we're, we're talking about dialogue, interaction, shared leadership, shared visioning, bringing people along with us. No confederacy should be formed with unbelievers, neither should you call together a certain chosen member who think as you do, and who will say amen to all that you propose, while others are excluded who you think will not be in harmony. I was shown there's great danger of doing this. And you know, you know, we're all tempted to do it because we like people to agree with us, right? We think our ideas are best in the West, and so we want everyone to agree. But it's not really healthy because we need to hear an opposing viewpoint. We need to hear different ideas. We need to hear both sides, and it will make us stronger as individuals and as a church. Ellen White uses this case study of Moses' leadership contrasted with Aaron's leadership to illustrate the positive and beneficial use of authority versus a weak and vacillating and popularity-seeking type of authority. Though she completely rejects the domineering and autocratic leadership style, she maintains that in times of a crisis, a leader must demonstrate firmness and decision and unflinching courage. The difference may be found in the leader's motivation. A domineering leader may be eager for power and control, whereas a decisive leader may be most eager to promote the honor of God. Ellen White was a strong proponent of the inclusive empowerment of people for evangelism and service. She saw gender-inclusive, race-inclusive, age-inclusive movement organized to propagate the gospel in the context of the Revelation's three angels. For her, the people of God are a melded humanity, where prejudice should never exist. The Holy Spirit should be allowed to anoint whom he will. And she said that no hand should be stayed back or held back that should be involved in ministry. Now, this is a rhetorical question. That means you don't answer it. What do you think that means in the reality of life? (laughs) That's okay. Sometimes we just can't help it. I'll let you think about that. For Ellen White, one of the strongest attributes of strong, godly leadership is the cultivated ability to connect with others. She speaks often of the need for patient mentors who will take youth and others with less experience under their wing, carefully encourage and motivate them, and provide opportunities for them to grow through success and failure. Absolutely. She even called it a duty for leaders to recognize and develop potential in other people. Leaders must deal with the erring, with Christ-like sympathy, offering hope and redemption even in failure. Though Ellen White acknowledged that reproof and protest are sometimes needed, discipline and correction must never be given harshly, but always in the spirit of God's long-suffering love. She advocated tenacious, patient, even tender interaction with those who make mistakes or use bad judgment or make other personal failures. Leaders who possess Christ-like love promote justice. They correct sin. They combat error while maintaining care and compassion. That that beautiful blend of justice and mercy. I mean, only God's spirit can enable us to have that perfect blend. I want to tell you what I think is kind of a funny story. Ellen White said that she had a dream. And in her dream, she saw John Harvey Kellogg go into his room, and there on the floor was a pile of stones that he had systematically laid up, stone upon stone. He placed the additional stones on the pile, and he counted them up. Every stone had a name, which was some report gathered up, and every stone was numbered. So she said the angel came to Dr. Kellogg with grief and indignation, and he says, what are you going to do with all those rocks? And Dr. Kellogg looked up with a sharp, gratified laugh. These are mistakes of James White. I'm going to stone him with them. I'm going to stone him to death. The, 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 the angel said, you're bringing back the stoning system, are you? You're worse than the ancient Pharisees. Who gave you this work to do? Brother Kellogg, this is not your work. The Lord raised you up. The Lord entrusted you with a special work. The Lord has sustained you in a most remarkable manner. But it was not for you to degrade your powers for this kind of work. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Dr. Kellogg seemed very defiant and determined. He said, James White is trying to tear us to pieces. He's working against us, and to save our reputation and life, we must work against him. 
I shall use every stone to the last pebble on this floor to kill him. This is only self-defense, a disagreeable necessity. And then the angel said solemnly, what have you gained? Have you in the act righted your wrongs? Have you opened your heart to Jesus Christ? And does he sit there enthroned? Who occupies the citadel of the soul under this administration of the stoning system? You have a higher calling, a more important work. Leave all such work of gathering stones for the enemies of God's law. You, brethren, must love one another, or you are not children of the day, but of darkness. You know what happened next? In her dream, Ellen White saw her husband James making a pile of stones. And the angel said, what are you doing? He said, every time I have a great idea, Dr. Kellogg, I'm paraphrasing, rains on my parade, and I'm going to stone him to death. And again, the angel said the same thing. Brother James, this is not your work. Lay down the stones. Do you think that criticism of others could prevent God from blessing our leadership. Time wasted in criticism and accusation would be better spent in proactive visioning and planning under the Spirit. Decisions should not be made until the leader's team engages in prayer and sometimes fasting. She urges leaders to sometimes delegate planning and future development to those with less experience in order to provide them with important opportunities to enlarge their leadership potential. And additionally, she recognized that each geographical location has its own challenges, and micromanaged visioning should not be done from a distance. In many areas, then, Ellen White makes a significant contribution to the discovery and understanding of leadership principles. It does not appear that her leadership principles will will ever become outdated, even in the face of this accelerating world change, because of the universal application. To illustrate, in its May 30, 2005 electronic newsletter called Update, the Barna Group, you know that's a surveying organization, usually religious surveys, announced Ellen White as one of the authors, along with the leadership theorist Jim Collins, who had the greatest impact on pastors surveyed under the age of 40. Now, this not one Seventh-day Adventist pastor was surveyed. This was all evangelical pastors. And of these pastors, under the age of 40, Ellen White, they, they listed Ellen White as one of, of the three most profound spiritual influences on them. So my question was, how do they know about Ellen White? And I have a theory about that. I have um, directed 10 years of MegaBook programs, and I like to think that all those hundreds of thousands of MegaBooks with Ellen White's writings in them have impacted evangelical pastors. In my evaluation, increasingly powerful economic, political, religious, and social forces, such as more countries linked to the capitalist system and more networks connecting people globally, will soon be associated with changes most people in our world do not envision today. These changes include the loss of personal freedoms to worship according to one's conscience, and I think we're seeing this sooner rather than later, and the ability of the dissenting minority to acquire goods and services. In this projected milieu, Ellen White's counsel on knowing God and anchoring that knowledge in Scripture may have far more relevance than we can even imagine today. All leaders, even great leaders, find themselves in complex circumstances where their leadership is challenged or their options seem perilously restricted. In an era of unprecedented information dissemination, communication speed, terrorism, AIDS, pandemics, globalization, financial meltdowns, family disintegration, our world may seem very different from Ellen White's world. Yet it is perhaps because of these accelerating changes in our world that her counsel to cultivate a calm trust in God in the face of life's stressors seems surprisingly fresh and apropos. Ellen White's distinctive and enduring message to leaders is to keep Jesus and the mystery of his cross ever before us, constant, especially in this chaos of societal change. In few eras... In few areas, does Ellen White give more counsel to leaders on the subject of the need for a leader to care for the poor and the needy and the marginalized? 
Yet we don't hear very much about Ellen White's theme, her emphasis on these themes. I believe that if contemporary leaders had no more information than just this, her enduring legacy and relevance to them would be assured. Did you know that half of the world, over 3 billion people, live on less than $2.50 a day? At least 80% of humanity lives on less than $10 a day? If your monthly income is $100 or more per month, you are in the top 1% of the world's wealthiest pe people. Uh, this month I read a very interesting interview with Melinda Gates in this month's Christianity Today, in which she discusses why she and her husband, Bill Gates, have chosen to give billions of their wealth to improve the health of those in developing countries. And even though they are not choosing to support gospel-linked nonprofits, as you or I probably choose to do, uh, she made it very clear that her philanthropy is faith-driven. Much of her ethos seemed clearly based on Jesus' counsel in, March 20, in Matthew 25, on which delineates the criteria upon which Jesus divides the sheep from the goats. Ellen White, of course, that wonderful herald of God's mercy and justice, is also consistent in her clarion call for leaders to make decisions, to mobilize and empower others in the light of helping every person to be prepared for the second coming. And as I mentioned, in this emphasis, she is truly unique. The remnant faithful people of God have a unique mission and a unique message. God needs every leader. A person's last words are very interesting to us, right? If their mind is clear, if their mind is alert, we're very interested in their last words. What were Jesus' last words before he returned to heaven? Yeah. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father. Teach them to observe all the things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. He didn't wait for any discussion. He didn't wait for any committee meetings, any argument about his commission. He returned to heaven just waiting our complete obedience. This commission does not exclude anyone. It's Jesus' commission to all of us. You know, today our church is a lot bigger. It's much larger and better organized to do its work than it was than was the case in Ellen White's era. But the mission for evangelism, the need for acts of mercy and compassion for the marginalized have only become larger as the church grows. Every day brings us closer to the coming of Jesus. Crises in our world, crises in our church bring great, greater urgency and relevance to the proclamation of Jesus, his love is coming. There's no less a need for workers today than there was when Ellen White said, every hand needs to be involved in ministry. Every hand needs to proclaim Christ's redemptive role, his work in the most holy place. So in summary, Ellen White's counsel to leaders on both spiritual and practical themes has ongoing relevance, definitely, in the 21st century. And for those of us who believe that Ellen White is a God-inspired visionary, her counsel, doubtless, has more impact than those who unfortunately believe that she's only a devotional writer. Her spiritual leadership counsel sharpens our inner focus, and her sound injunctions offer peace in the frenetic and conflicted workplace, community, church, and society. I think that Ellen White's leadership counsel may have a significant impact on us today in 2015 as Seventh-day Adventist leaders, giving us wisdom for our myriad challenges and a deepening commitment to our Lord Jesus. Now, don't go away. I want you to do something because Ellen White says that we should pray more and talk less. And I want to invite you to each pick one question. We're not going to have more than 10 or 15 minutes to do this. And I want you to break up in groups of four or five. And before you do that, I just want to tell you, go around the circle one time, and each person pick one question. I've got five questions on here. Each person pick one question to answer, and then I would like you to pray together. Just pray that God will inspire us to be the leaders that he has called, and that the Holy Spirit will be here with us this weekend, but especially living in our hearts, um, so that we'll be ready for whatever challenges 
he gives us today, tomorrow, and next week. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.